your agency will be separating children from their parents. And no, I would what we'll be doing is prosecuting parents who've broken the law, just as we do every day in the United States of America. I, I can appreciate that. But if that parent has a four-year-old child, what do you plan on doing with that child? The child under law goes to HHS for care and custody. Nielsen always seemed like a nice person, but it's possible that she was never really a good fit for the job that she had. So Congress must end catch and release so that illegal border crossers can be quickly and safely returned to their home. Get out. Sorry, get out. Sorry, can't handle it. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. The Trump cabinet lost one of its own this week. That's Kirsten Nielsen, director of the Department of Homeland Security, an obfuscator of basic information about the humanitarian crisis that she caused. No one can tell you a cage is not a cage, a separation is not a separation, and a death is not a death like Kirsten Nielsen did. When Nielsen implemented the practice of separating parents and children, accused of crossing over the U.S.-Mexico border illegally, she evidently left her conscience in a cage as she went on to cover for the practice to justify it as children were lost and died. She's a master denier and whitewasher, though she attended the meeting at which Trump referred to majority Black nations as shithole countries. She very loyally said she never heard him use those words. You all may remember that the FBI, CIA, and NSA said conclusively in January 2017 that Russia interfered in the U.S. presidential election to get Trump elected. Remember that? But at a May 2018 congressional hearing, Nielsen said she was, quote, unaware that Russia interfered in the U.S. to get Trump elected. She later said, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. Yes, that happened. When asked after Charlottesville to condemn white supremacy, I mean, come on, folks. How hard can that be? She said, it's not that one side is right, one side is wrong. Anybody that's advocating violence, we need to work to mitigate. Work to mitigate both sides. In June 2018, Nielsen said that the Trump administration did not separate migrant families at the southern border. And at that point, the Trump administration had, in six weeks, separated approximately 2,000 migrant children from their parents. Contrary to Nielsen's claims, even the DHS website at the time showed a policy of family separation was in place. Nielsen also lied about family separation being used for, quote, deterrence, and also denied that Trump could undo it with a single executive order. Nielsen is probably the most frankly Orwellian player in this world of liars, since her lies are not world wrestling, Carney Barker, reality TV lies, they're the deep, dark war crimes kind of lies. And now that she's out, I'm going to propose one more time that she gets some nice rest, relaxation, and a break from the American circus at The Hague. It's so beautiful this time of year. And before her trial, she could get a massage and maybe even some noise-canceling headphones to block out the screams of caged children. My guest today is Philip Bump. He's a national correspondent for The Washington Post based in New York. He doesn't like Hague talk and no doubt thinks this attack on Nielsen goes too far. He's got a gift for moderation and temperance, which I lack. Nonetheless, Philip and I are going to talk about Nielsen, the peril of acting cabinet directors, proof and non-proof of collusion, how we misread elections, and much more. 
I'll be back with Philip in just a minute. But first, the tweets. Congressman Jerry Nadler fought me for years on a very large development I built on the west side of Manhattan. He wanted a rail yard built underneath the development, or even better, to stop the job. He didn't get either, and the development became very successful. Nevertheless, I got along very well with Jerry during the zoning and building process. Then I changed course slightly, became the president, and now I am dealing with Congressman Nadler again. Some things never end, but hopefully it will all go well for everybody. Only time will tell. So let's get this straight. There was no collusion. And in fact, the phony dossier was a con job that was paid for by Crooked Hillary and the DNC. So the 13 angry Democrats were investigating an event that never happened. And that was, in fact, a made up fraud. I just fought back against something I knew never existed. Collusion with Russia. So ridiculous. No obstruction. This Russia hoax must never happen to another president and law enforcement must find out how did it start. And the Democrats will never be satisfied. No matter what they get, how much they get or how many pages they get, it will never end. But that's the way life goes. Philip, welcome to Trumpcast. Thank you very much. So I first want to ask, you and I met on an MSNBC show not long ago, but what really reminded me of how much I wanted to have you on Trumpcast is a tweet you had, I think, April 3rd, following the New York Times report that members of the Office of the Special Counsel had been talking and saying that the Barr letter grievously misinterpreted and played down, subdued the findings of the Mueller report, which were going to be much more damaging. And you went to Twitter. I think you did the very bold thing, but apparently it's just all in a day's work for you. And you satirized the Times headline from 2016 that said FBI finds no clear link, basically, of Trump to Russia. And the New York Times has been trying to live that headline down all these years. And here you went on and said they find no clear link to exoneration. So like investigating, what did you say, Trump? The Mueller report finds no clear link to exoneration, which is, of course, the word Trump himself had used. Anyway, this gets a little inside baseball, but I thought it was bold because... Lots of us have remembered, have not forgotten that Times headline. And are you in that camp? Had you thought, you know, why did they do that? And why did they jump the gun all those years ago when we've seen nothing but clear link between Trump and Russia since? Well, I mean, I think that there are a few things I'd say. And the first thing I would say is that I I don't feel it's particularly bold because if we started ascribing boldness to people's dumb Twitter jokes, then I think we're sort of taking Twitter more seriously than we ought. (laughs) Okay, that's probably true. You know, I mean, I think that the the headline itself on that post, on that article, was broadly accurate from the standpoint that at that time, based on what they knew, the FBI was looking for these links, and it's not clear— you know, where the standard of what constitutes a link might lie, right? I mean, you know, so they knew at that time, we now know that George Papadopoulos had had this information, yada, yada, yada. But then we get this whole nuanced conversation we've been having for two years since about what constitutes an important link. What is what is something of significance where there's broad partisan disagreement? I mean, the point of my tweet was more to, A, make a joke at the Times' expense, since I work for the Washington Post, and we like to do that sure. on occasion. 
Um, uh, but secondarily, to sort of point out that there is a similar nebulousness here that has uh, consistently lent itself to people making overly broad assertions on things, right? Yeah. You know, so it was sort of a dig at the times. But, you know, I mean, if you, if you really break down the, the joke as such, it sort of doesn't really even work as a joke. Just <laughs> it's like it's not really clear what exactly where the where the parallels that I'm drawing are. Uh, and I think I can own that. But anyway, so that, that's sort of what I was thinking. I think that the evocation just of that phrase, I mean, those of us who are in this thing way too deep, like you and me, know what it means when someone says, if it's what you say, I love it. And when you're a star, they let you. And no clear link is, for better or worse, how that story has gone down in history that around the days that Comey said the investigation into Hillary Clinton had been reopened. And then also the Times also said this no clear link. So it seemed to push down on one pedal and letting up on the other pedal and they were the wrong pedal. I'd love to have, just to return to that original No Clear Link piece, what was the Washington Post doing around that time? Because it was actually very challenging for reporters. And we talk a lot about the Times that October 2016, but where were you? I mean, what was sort of going on in your mind in that very difficult news month? Right. Well, I mean, I think it's important for folks to remember that this was sort of a sideshow at that point, right? I mean, we'd had Mm -hmm. the third presidential debate in which Hillary Clinton accused Trump of having been a Russian puppet, and he offered his famous no puppet, no puppet reply. But folks forget that, that at that time, that was even overshadowed by his refusal to say that he would accept the results of the election. That was the thing that people were focused on in October yes, 2016. Yes, that's right. That, you know, people were worried Trump was going to, you know, do whatever if and when, which people thought was sort of the necessary eventuality, he lost the election, whether or not he would actually give Hillary Clinton credit for that. So that's sort of where people's minds were. And of course, at the time, I was, you know, looking at poll numbers and, you know, doing all of the various things. This seemed sort of like a sideshow. The WikiLeaks thing was obviously important. There were existing connections that had been made to Russia through WikiLeaks. But that also was seemed secondary to the fact that all this information was out there to a lot of reporters as well. Right. Mm-hmm. And so this is, you know, I, I'm obviously wandering close to territory where people are going to start throwing uh, butter emails tweets at me, which is fine. But, you know, that's not really the point I'm making. The point I'm making is there was a lot going on. And the Russia uh, argument, I think, was not even necessarily secondary in that conversation. It was just sort of this other thing that was happening and we didn't have any real sense of how important it would come to be. It's always so hard to remember how sure, not in a hubris way, but how just convinced in ourselves we were that Hillary was going to win. So the question was not, is Trump compromised? The question was, will he accept the outcome of the election, which is bound to be in Hillary's favor? And what's that going to be like when he mobilizes his people to fight it? You know, and then as it turned out, he didn't accept, you know, he said millions voted illegally and he was all geared up to question the results of the election, no matter who it favored. But you're right that that overshadowed that. It's also, I think, important to remember that that no clear link headline was to Eric Lichtblau's piece. And Eric Lichtblau has since said that he was working on a piece that suggested there might be links, this Alpha Bank piece. And then that was buried and the headline twisted. So we all also know what it's like to have a headline not adequately represent or even do a disservice to the article. But two roads diverged at that point. And you had the Lichtblaus and the Franklin Fours and the David Corns, you know, really decide that there was something very nefarious here. And then there was a middle group. And then there were obviously people on the far right and far left who said this was a horrible witch hunt. Where did you fall or how have you navigated those three paths? 
Right. So, I mean, at the time, I mean, it's it's sort of interesting the examples you use there because Corn obviously was focused heavily on the dossier and Foyer mm-hmm. head to head uh, focused on this Alpha Bank connection. And neither of those things really bore a lot of fruit, right? I mean, the Alpha Bank thing was very quickly debunked. And, you know, I think it's, has been, you know, applying Occam's razor to that assertion over the course of the past two years. I mean, even at the time, I spoke to experts right after Foyer's piece came out and they were just like, yeah, this doesn't make sense as a theory. A much more plausible thing is X, Y, and Z, which involves marketing emails and so on and so forth. There's never been anything demonstrating that was actually anything of any real significance. So, yeah, I mean, at the time, there certainly was this sort of agitation for more attention being paid to this thing. But the evidence for it at the time really wasn't that robust, right? I mean, so the dossier itself, yes, there's all this back and forth argumentation over whether or not the dossier included information which was both uh, uh, proven and particularly damning. And those those arguments, and you know, it, we don't necessarily need to get into them, but there hasn't been a lot of stuff in the dossier which you can take and hold in your hand and say this is a thing that actually ended up being one hundred percent accurate. Now, I'm not an FBI agent. The FBI got that apparently in September 2016. That for them, as they were already investigating these links, obviously. This is a guy who's got a track record. He's given them information in the past. This is unverified intelligence that's worth tracking down. It's like important to them. But should that have been something that a news organization ran with at the time? You know, I mean, look, I, I'm based in New York. I wasn't at the Post headquarters in D.C. I mm-hmm. believe, and I may be incorrect here, that we had been provided with some information from the dossier at the time. Again, this is based on something I read I, that may not be accurate. But if it were the case, the Post clearly decided not to do anything with it. And why not? It's very hard to verify information like that. And we're not mm-hmm. in the business of just sort of throwing stuff out there. We're in the business of presenting what our understanding is. And so this also ties back to the whole point about the Times, which is that, yeah, I mean, look, in retrospect, that headline presented a case about Donald Trump, which seems uh, at best overly generous, right? At the time, based on what the Times knew, uh, I, I don't know. I mean, it's, you know, I'm not I'm not the executive editor of The New York Times, so it's a, mm-hmm. sort of hard for me to judge them in that moment with what they knew. OK, so you said a lot there. And I hadn't realized that you were sort of a skeptic about the significance, if there's any, to those Alpha Bank pings and the uses of the dossier. But, you know, as we get closer to discussing what the role of the Mueller report is going to be in in persuading Americans or not persuading them one way or the other and Congress, it seems worth talking about the links that are in plain view. This is what I think of as the Adam Schiff speech, which doesn't mention Alpha Bank. It doesn't mention Seychelles. It doesn't mention any of the Seth Abramson stuff that, you know, you and I have discussed a little bit. It's just simply the facts of the Trump Tower meeting that no one disputes, including Don Jr. himself, including Trump himself. It's Flynn's lies about his connection to the Russians. I think what I like about the Schiff speech, as opposed to the Barr letter, as opposed to the more woolly you know, outside stuff that I like a little more than you do, like Seth Amerson, is that it says we're agreed on the facts, actually. We're agreed on, like, let's say these 10 facts. And they're either sort of by the way, or they're interesting, or they're not. And depending on whether you think, as Schiff says, this is what it takes to win. You know, you go to people that offer dirt on your opponent. And of course, you don't, you know, what kind of goody-goody calls that into the FBI? Everybody needs dirt. And, you know, lying to the FBI is not the worst thing in the world. People have done it forever and that these crimes don't add up to all that much. And then there are people on the left. I heard Jerry Brown say recently that he thinks the American government and the Russians should be interacting. That's the only way to peace, you know, that kind of Cold War thinking. So basically, Adam Schiff asks, if we can agree that all this happened, 
and even Trump agrees and even Flynn's plea deal agrees, then the question is really, do you think it's okay? Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and I'm not sure if you're saying, do I think it's okay? Or is that the question, whether or not an American thinks it's okay? I think it is that the question. Yeah, no, I think that is the question, right? And I think that is at the heart of this whole debate we have over collusion, right? So you and I both know that if you look at William Barr's letter, there's no mention made of collusion. There's no mention made in the quoted material from all his report about collusion. Mm-hmm. Collusion is not what was being assessed in that letter, right? Yeah. What was being assessed in that letter was conspiracy and coordination. And so we use this term collusion in part because President Trump started using it in that interview with Lester Holt on May 11th, 2016. He first asked when he first said no collusion. He's been saying that ever since, despite all the things we've learned over that intervening period. And the question essentially is, do you think that it was collusion for President Trump's team to agree to a meeting at Trump Tower on June 9th, 2016, with people who he believed were offering information from the Russian government? If you think that is collusion, then collusion has been established. If you don't, then it hasn't. And so we use collusion both as a term, generally speaking, to describe a certain set of interactions between Trump and Russia, but we generally use it as a proxy for bad or good, right? (laughs) And so everyone agrees collusion is bad. Because of that, Donald Trump says no collusion, aka no bad, and everyone else who doesn't like Donald Trump says collusion, aka bad, right? You know, I mean, it's not to be overly simplistic, but that's really where the debate is right now. And we don't have enough information from Barr or from Mueller to be able to answer the more important question, which is what did these interactions look like? To what extent was Donald Trump aware of them? When was he aware of them? How did it influence what his campaign did? We don't have good answers to those questions. And instead, we're bogged down on this nonsense, good, bad collusion issue. I think that is exactly right. That word collusion is just a proxy word for good and bad. And Mick Mulvaney, I mean, I think I've seen Jake Tapper try and get him off this to say it doesn't matter what the American people think. We'll get to that in a second. Doesn't matter what the people think. Please try to tell us, do you think something's morally or ethically wrong with all these meetings and contacts with Russians, the campaign, not only campaign, transition team, and in some cases, the administration itself? And Mulvaney just said, well, the people will decide that. Then he said again, the people voted for him knowing that he wouldn't show his taxes. So that decides it. And so I think that is a real crux of a conversation that's not even it's not as charged as the conversation about collusion. It's just these norms. Like, what is our real investment in these norms? And do the people just decide that if they decided that they voted for someone who's never held political office before or done military service, if they voted for someone who dodged the draft, if they voted for someone who won't show his, his tax returns, does that mean going forward that we have new norms? So this is an extremely common nonsense argument that's made by campaigns, right? Everything that a candidate says is at some point in time, if that candidate wins, is used as a rationalization for moving forward with that policy, right? Well, you know Mm. what? Donald Trump said that he wanted to send all you know, all cows into the middle of the ocean to drown and people vote for Trump. So therefore we're going to send all, you know, I mean, that's not how elections work. A lot of people Mm -hmm. vote for Donald Trump because they hated Hillary Clinton and vice versa, right? There are a lot of people that voted for Donald Trump because they loved what he's talking about. The border wall couldn't give less of a a darn about uh, revamping NAFTA. Clearly, I don't know what the boundaries are on swearing on this podcast. So I'm going to go with, with saying darn. So this is this we see this all the time in elections that people try and use their own victory to justify whatever random policies they propose. And that simply is it's a it's a a massive oversimplification of how people consider elections. Now, that said, I do think Trump's base more than most other bases for elected officials do really want him to do all the various things he said. And at times 
have sort of come on board with stuff they don't care about simply because Donald Trump does advocate for it, right? Mm -hmm. So you're going to hear a lot of people who are in Trump's base actually echoing Mulvaney's line saying, you know what, I don't care about those taxes. And I think they legitimately don't care about seeing Donald Trump's taxes. I don't think that's why they went and voted for him. And I don't think it's fair to make that argument. But I think it is fair to say, at the very least, that the 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 less than a plurality of people who voted for Donald Trump in 2016 are content with the fact he hasn't released his tax returns. In this particular example, I think that's actually fair for him to say. Now, all this Russia stuff came out after the election, so it's you know it's impossible to say that people voted for Donald Trump with the full understanding, for example, that his son met with Russians in June 2016. We didn't know that happened before election day, so there's no way he yeah. can just say that. I keep getting in my head, maybe it's time to just admit it, the moment in Sweet Home Alabama, Watergate does not bother me. Does your conscience bother you? You know, it's like the anthem of the countryside of the red states of Alabama. Is there a history of red state sort of indifference, almost like, eh, we'll just go to hell. Who cares about Watergate? Who cares about the Mueller report? Who cares about the taxes? That like part of the thing is indifference, whatever party is doing it indifference to swampy stuff. I I mean, I don't know if it's necessarily a red state thing. I think it's pretty consistent that people who like a particular political party or candidate are more willing to give that person or party a pass, right? You know, I mean, if you look at however you may think about Benghazi as an issue, right? That is something that for a lot of people was very, very aggravating. A lot of that was hyped up, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, Fox News spent a lot of time and energy making so that people would be mad about Benghazi. But a lot of people were really, really irritated about what happened to Benghazi, very frustrated with Obama, very frustrated with Hillary Clinton. And a lot of people in places that voted for Obama didn't really care that much, right? And so, you know, that's not passing judgment on either Benghazi or either side of that debate. It is simply to reinforce the idea that if you hold a particular position and a particular position of support for a political party or a candidate, then you're more likely than not to give that party or candidate a pass on things that that they may do. In one of your recent articles, I mean, you're such a polymath and you're so prolific that this is probably three articles ago for you. But what do you make of the fact that the American people don't seem to think Trump is exonerated? Your sense of whether Trump committed, quote, collusion or is blameless and spotless doesn't actually proceed in lockstep with your party affiliation. I always think about the Manafort juror. Do you remember this woman who like was decked out in MAGA gear and really thought the Mueller investigation was a witch hunt, but still thought, well, you know, if you look at the numbers, Manafort committed these financial crimes. And it seems as though there are some people who think I'm putting aside what I think of, you know, the wall and Trump policies and the party. It doesn't quite look like he's completely innocent on the obstruction and conspiracy charges. Well, obstruction is particularly interesting since, A, we know that Mueller specifically said he wasn't exonerated, and B, we know there's extant evidence that no one's seen, right? Because in Barr's letter, he said, most of which is public about the evidence of obstruction, implying that some of it's not yet public. And so that'll be interesting to see in in what Mueller comes out with. So that said, yeah, I mean, the polling shows that most Americans are still either withholding judgment or skeptical of the conclusions which President Trump has drawn. But if you look at those numbers and you look at the breakdown by party, it very much maps with the very, very consistent trend that we've seen since the beginning of his presidency. Democrats think he's a liar and he's full of it. Republicans think he tells is honest, more honest than the media and tells the truth. Independents tend to side more with Democrats than with the Republicans. A small fraction of Democrats and a small fraction of Republicans buck their party. That's the mm. pattern. That's been the part pattern since Jan- noon of January 20th, 2017, right? And so if yeah. you look at the breakdown 
of those polls by each of those issues, that's the exact same pattern you see. Democrats think, yeah, this guy's guilty. He should go to jail. Republicans think this guy's totally innocent. This is all a witch hunt. Independents are like, yeah, I tend to side with the, with the Democrats. And as a result, it tends to be slightly more than half that agree that the, the, you know, the jury is still out, essentially. And it depends mm-hmm. on which poll you look at and, and the question that they ask. But we see that again and again and again. We see it on, for example, honesty. I have this, I'm on this Jeremiah recently about how people say, well, we just need to point out that Donald Trump you know, lies about things and, and, you know, then that will affect 2020. People have known Donald Trump lies about things since well before the 2016 election, right? Yeah. Going back to the Mulvaney point, a lot of people either don't believe that he lies or don't care that he lies about things, yeah. right? And so, yeah. you know, the, this isn't something new to the American public, nor is it new here what Donald Trump's position is on this issue of, quote, collusion, unquote, or, uh, you know, what William Barr's letter says about him. None of this is, is particularly reshaping the political map. So first of all, you've dashed my hopes that we're going to be filled with those Manafort jurors, people who can temporarily table their political fever to think about facts and go through the Adam Schiff list. On the other hand, I'm contradicting myself here, but Adam Schiff's list is not in dispute. Nobody after that, with every stake in the world, said, you know, oh, well, Schiff is actually wrong that Donald Trump Jr. didn't take that meeting or any little detail they didn't pick up on. So which returns us to the question that's either an interesting question or not of what does Congress think is okay? What do the people think is okay? And it seems like sort of a banal question, but I actually would like to hear more Jerry Browns of the world or more on the right operatives maybe say, are you kidding me? This is how elections are won everybody's getting dark money and some of it's from these places. And, you know, because if they're going ahead agreeing on the facts, the only people who could defend him are people who think it's okay, right? Or are you silencing that part of your brain? You're you're not being the Manafort juror. You're saying, uh, there's the facts over there, but my, yeah, I don't know. I'm just all passionate. Well, I mean, I think that I don't it, care. one of the things that informs that question is if you look at polling, Pew Research Center's done great polling on this and looking at how people view members of the opposite party, right? So how Democrats view Republicans and vice versa. And, you know, I think in 2016, something like 40% viewed the other side very unfavorably, members of the other party very unfavorably, and something like two thirds unfavorably to some extent, right? You know, mm-hmm. polling repeatedly shows that a lot of Democrats a lot of Republicans view the other side as a direct threat to the United States of America, right? And I don't right. remember the exact numbers, but, you know, it's probably close to 50% of Democrats see Republicans as a threat to the United States and vice versa, right? And so mm-hmm. this, 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 this issue of partisanship, which obviously has been talked about ad nauseum, is not unimportant to answering that question. There are a lot of people who feel like, you know what, it is so important that Donald Trump be elected president of the United States, that if he did this thing, I don't care because he was that it was that important mm-hmm. that he beat Hillary Clinton, right? When you view yeah. things through the lens of Democrats are inherently dangerous, then you're not really going to care that Donald Trump Jr. met with someone, especially if it didn't actually work out <laughs> anything useful, right? Yeah. You're just you're just not going to care that much. And yes, is this something that people have spoken out about? Sure. You know, you have your never Trumpers. You have people like Stuart Stevens, who's a, you know, worked with uh, with uh, George W. Bush and worked with Mitt Romney. And he's been a vocal critic of President Trump for these sorts of things. Yeah. Because for him, that's not what it comes out. It doesn't come to win at any cost. Right. I mean, that's just not yeah. his approach to partisan politics. But I think that that is one of the reasons why we see the consistent strong support, both from Republicans broadly for Trump, but then as a derivative of that from Republican members of Congress for Trump is simply this idea of, you know what, if that thing happened, then fine. Is it ideal? No. But you know what? It was it was that important. Yeah. 
So that really adds up to me because I've been thinking like a lot of us about this admissions, recent admissions scandal. And also since the election about if there's any kind of legitimacy cloud around Trump's presidency, I mean, if if he got a Russian assist, if he was part of it or not, or what do we make of basically the role of cheating in these kind of conversations? I don't know if you saw Icarus, the movie about the Sochi doping scandal. So that got me wondering, you know, like, what do you do with a gold medal that was like ill-gotten or you gave yourself a boost? And also, why do people cheat? And clearly... They're convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that everybody else is doing it. That's the admission scandal, people. That's Putin with Sochi that he thought the Chinese were doing it. You're an idiot if you don't. The Felicity Huffman people who cheated to get their kids into college just believed, oh, the system has changed. It's rigged and you have to outthink it. You know, and it's like Trump saying that about his taxes. You know, Hillary, good girl Hillary is like, but you don't pay your taxes. And he says, I think that's smart. I think that the Trump supporters are very much in that cheating is gameplay. Maybe you can't beat your opponent, but you beat the whole game. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, you're, you're conflating a few things here, which is Trump's electoral strategy with this concept of cheating. And, and you know, yeah. I, mean, I, 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 you know, I just want to sort of divide those two things up just because, you know, while I, I understand your point, obviously, I do think it's important to remember that, you know, from what we know right now, we don't know necessarily the extent to which Trump himself or senior campaign members may have actually tried to influence or affect what Russia tried to do in the election. Right. I mean, that's that's the outstanding question that we're still waiting for answers. On, right. True. So that said, the the point that you raise about people willing to take uh, these sorts of shortcuts is, is, yeah, I mean, it's hard to disagree with that. You know, I mean, I think that it's pretty obvious why Vladimir Putin endorsed the what happened in Sochi, which is that he wanted to win medals. Yeah, <laughs> you, know, yeah. you know, there's always sort of this rationalization. That, you know, I, don't, I think it's fairly easy to, to, to see what's happening here. But yeah, I think your point about the tax returns for Donald Trump, though, I think is, is totally fair. People just didn't care. People don't care. Right. I mean, we, you and I and a lot of people who spend a lot of time focused on politics spend a lot of time also thinking about what it means uh, the role that politics plays as part of the functioning American democracy, right? Mm-hmm. Obviously, it is valuable to have elections that are contested fairly, contested honorably, and when you lose, you lose and you go away quietly, right? Those are the sort of precepts that we we celebrate about how American elections are run. But you know yeah. what? Chris Hayes has this great book, The Rise of the Meritocracy, or whatever. I don't remember the exact title off the top of my yeah. head. Uh, but he raises this point. College basketball team, I think it was UCLA, basically figured out a way of playing basketball that was totally outside of the norms, totally broke not the rules, but broke the expectations for how people were going to play. And it helped them win a ton of games, but the games were super boring. They just hold the ball forever and so on and so forth. And it led mm-hmm. the institution to the shot clock, right? The point being that, yeah, you can figure out a way to get around these norms and win the game, but then the game's terrible, and then everyone has to come up with new rules because you're being a jackass about it, right? Yes, so yeah. there's a lot of that. <laughs> you know, I mean, it didn't just start now, but you know, I think part of it is that all of us pay a lot more attention to the news, and all of us have social media, so all these things sort of sh- get shared a lot more, and so that that may may heighten the sense of it happening. But yeah, there's always been a path to victory that involves working outside of norms. I don't want to call that itself a norm because that's a little too cute. But, you know, I mean, this is this is something that I think most presidents, because we have a limited pool of both presidential campaigns and a history of presidents coming from the world of politics where these sorts of things are respected, that hadn't really been as much of a part of the conversation until 2016. 
That actually nails something up now. I want to look at the Hayes book. But yeah, making the game boring is interesting. Did you see those illicitly recorded? Someone was wearing wire conversations that the Cambridge Analytica crowd had about how good they were at rigging elections. And they were boasting about the American election and just talking about, you know, all you need to do is move. I think they said 30,000 voters or something. And I don't know. It just if you move 30,000 voters in some advantageous counties, you aren't getting that incredibly fascinating, dramatic, interesting referendum on who Americans are in every four years. Just even simply saying the election is much less interesting and revealing. It's like what you said, the game becomes a little more sterile, like you said about the the UCLA basketball game. There's something very frustrating about reading the 2016 election, as we seem determined to do over and over again, because it wasn't as telling in the right ways. Even Mulvaney saying the people are perfectly happy with not showing taxes. He decisively lost the popular vote. Like, what do we keep doing with that fact? You just like you're reading the map wrong when you're reading it as if it was indeed partly hacked by this Cambridge Analytica way, you know, game of just working certain voters. There's absolutely no reason that anyone should think Cambridge Analytica did anything close to swinging 40,000 votes in three states. There's almost no evidence Cambridge Analytica did anything of any use in the election. I think <laughs> they, they were boasting. I will say they were exactly. absolutely there was, it was a sale. trying to sell themselves. Which, and which it, I think it, gets yeah. to your point, right? Your point was that people are embracing this idea of cheating. They were actually marketing themselves as helping people cheat. So that, yes, that really yes. does bolster your point. But people should not think that there's any, there's been nothing that I've seen. And I know, like, it, I have a pretty good sense of how Facebook works and how it worked in elections. There's no evidence at all that they did anything close to what they were bragging about. I just think that's important to know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're with their, like, special dark math or whatever. Right, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's all incredibly interesting because the things they were boasting about are also now things they were accused of doing. This sort of goes to Trump saying it's smart that I didn't pay taxes in these years. You could almost imagine the Mueller report coming out and... If Trump can't spin it to say no collusion, he could say that what he used to say about, well, everybody would have taken that meeting to get dirt on Hillary Clinton. And like, of course, we called Sergei Kislyak because we wanted to set up a different relation, a restart with Russia when we took office and cautioning them not to retaliate against the sanctions was a good idea. All right. Before we go, I want to talk about our dear departed Kirsten Nielsen leaving Homeland Security. It doesn't look like she's going straight to The Hague, but some of us almost wish she would. I know you're not even going to laugh at that because you don't even like the (laughs) Nope. No, no laughter. What do you uh, you had a, a good, a really just interesting article for context about how many acting directors there are in these in these positions and um, what the consequences of that are. I don't think I totally understand the consequences of those. And I also want you to tell me what you think about Nielsen's departure. Yeah, I think it's fascinating. Right. You know, I mean, look, Donald Trump has established that he likes to have acting cabinet heads. And the reason why he likes that pretty obviously right off the bat, is that he doesn't have to go and ask Senate to weigh in on it. He doesn't like that. He's always wanted to run the presidency like it was the Trump organization, and he gets to do what he wants to do, and no one gets to weigh in on it. So that's one of the reasons that he likes acting heads. You can put them in. They're right there. He can he can tell them what to do, yada, yada, yada. He doesn't have to get... And they're always auditioning. They're always auditioning, right? So they always are trying to be on his good side. They have no job security. The case in point for that is Matt mm-hmm. Whitaker, you know, trying to get himself in front of the president and get a job at the Justice Department. So, yeah, I mean, I think that Nielsen's legacy is very toxic politically, right? You know, I don't know where she goes now. And, I, you know, I've already seen people who are having commentary online about, you know, how they would treat 
any organization that she went to go work for. I mean, I think that she is very, very closely associated, and deservedly so, with probably the least popular thing that President Trump has done as President of the United States. And it's going to be an interesting test of this idea that Trump appointees will be so close to the land with Trump that it may damage their prospects out in the real world. I mean, we've seen people like Sean Spicer, who, you know, in a normal administration would have gone on to some, you know, cush PR job at some tech company or whatever. That's what we saw, you know, 85 people who left Obama's communication staff go do. But Sean Spicer, you know, I mean, he, the last thing I saw, he's working as like some like weird color dude for extra, right? I mean, it's just like, he's not in that same position. And a large part of that is because of his association with the Trump administration. So I think that Nielsen is personally in a spot that is, it's going to be tough for her to figure out what her next step is. But I also think that President Trump was happy to see her go because he wants someone who's going to be as tough as possible on immigration mm-hmm. without really being able to articulate what exactly that means or looks like. Right. Um, and, you know, now he, he, you know, this is also how he operates. He asks people to do things that may or may not be realistic. And when they don't deliver, he gets rid of them and he, he moves forward. Speaking of Sean Spicer, so he can leave and other people in communications can leave and go to Fox News or even Extra. Sean Spicer is an interesting one because didn't Harvard briefly think of hiring him? And then was he going to go on Dancing with the Stars? Um, the You know, that it's like between reality TV and some institution like Harvard, you know, respectable place. And that's really the culture is trying to handle these people. What are you? Are you a carny? Are you headed to, I mean, like Scaramucci or whatever? Are you going to do Omarosa? Like, I don't know what that exit career looks like. Or have you sufficiently laundered your carny career that you had before you got to the White House? And now you can do something slightly more respectable. Anyway, it's not clear. We know they can write books. And that maybe is the end of it. But if you're Rex Tillerson or Gary Cohn and you tried at least to make it clear that you'd been unswayed while you were there and, you know, that it was hell on earth and you were working with a baby and you did the best you could to contain him. I mean, they really come out with they're like looking toward their obituary so they won't be blamed. Well, that's true to some extent, but they're also both massively wealthy people. So who cares? Right. What, that may be the one plus side to Donald Trump hiring all these millionaires is now they don't have to worry about getting jobs once they leave the administration. Yeah, that's right. I mean, they hopefully will stick around. I mean, for them, ideally, they stick around for at least another 10 years so they can like get the stench off them. But as for Nielsen, she's mid-career and she's already starting to say some of the Rex Tillerson stuff. I don't think she's talking to a Bob Woodward person yet, but I bet we can expect an expose about border policy that with her as a source, partly because I think they simply want to confess and reframe their actions as I was trying to contain him. And so like the day of her firing or resignation, she already said he's unhinged. He was trying to push me to do unreasonable things and to make it look as though she had drawn a line with him. But unhinged was pretty far to go. That's an Omarosa word. She's stepping out from a cabinet position where she might have been in a position to remove him on the grounds that he's unhinged. And she's saying unhinged. Forget about it was a great pleasure to serve our amazing president and dear leader Pyongyang stuff. She's saying he's crazy and I'm out. I mean, I think that the the challenge that Nielsen in particular is going to have is the fact that there was this fight, uh, you know, six months, a year ago. Uh, in which there was this rumor tension between herself and Donald Trump. And after that, she doubled down and tried to impress upon him that she was doing her job well. Right. And I think that that by itself, if you are inclined to view her with skepticism after her tenure at the White House, it's going to be hard to give her the benefit of the doubt when she went back 
and fought her way back into Donald Trump's good graces uh, before eventually actually trying to tender a resignation. I think I think that by itself, you know, sort of undercuts that effort, which you're right. We've seen repeatedly from various people as the LEP administration. The aftermath of this administration is going to be with us forever, it seems. And having these people try to rebuild themselves even while he's still president is, I think, an auger of things to come. Look, I think it's important to point out here that there are people who work for the Trump administration who, while skeptical broadly of things that Trump does and of his personal demeanor, think that he's doing the right sorts of things, right? Cutting regulations, cracking down the EPA, uh, appointing conservative judges. Like, there are people who are Republicans who may not like Donald Trump himself, but who serve in this administration, you know, like the people who you saw in this New York Times editorial. And and the extent to which people who may work for the administration don't necessarily get the sense of how particularly their political opponents view the toxicity of Trump himself, I think it's important to note that that's not a view that's necessarily shared by those folks, right? So it's not as though there are people working for Trump who are like this guy, you know, with, with the exception of some people who've left and have made it very clear that that's how they feel. That there are yeah. people who, who feel like I'm just helping advance a Republican agenda here. And so, it, you know, I, I think that there's a divide, too, on that point, that there are, well, there is a, a lot of Americans who are going to think that anyone who ever worked for the Trump administration are hugely politically toxic. There are going to be a lot of people who did work for the Trump administration who will not be seen that way, particularly by folks from Trump's own party, simply because they weren't part of the more contentious aspects of what Trump actually tried to do. I think that's really smart. One last question. Do you think that the unnamed senior administration officials who had their anonymous, their soft coup or their sort of detente around Trump, the ones who wrote that piece in the New York Times op-ed page, do you think they're still around? Or have they disbanded? That's a good question. Well, I think it's just an individual, right? I don't think there was an idea there was multiple people. Is the person still there? That's, that's a great question. Along with the Mueller report, which who knows when we'll actually see the whole thing. You know, we, mo- we may both be in well in our 80s when we finally learn these details. And I, and I can't wait. <laughs> exactly. I'll have you back when we're in our 80s. Thank you very, very much, Philip. You bet. That's it for today's show. Tell us what you think. Our Twitter lines are open. I'm at page 88. The show is at Real Trumpcast. And before I go... If you signed up for Slate Plus yet, you can get all of Slate's podcasts ad-free. Best of all, you'll be supporting our work. So go to slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus. Our show today was produced by Melissa Kaplan. John D. Domenico is, as always, our voice of Donald Trump. You can find him on Twitter at JohnnyD23. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. I won in a massive landslide, and that's what we're going to do for the Trump cast, for the Webby Awards. We need you to go to WebbyAwards.com and go to News and Politics and vote for the Trump cast. If you don't vote for the Trump cast, I am going to keep running and become president for life. The Mueller report turned up no collusion and no obstruction. They got nada, nothing, zilch, zero, other than 34 people indicted, plus three companies, seven guilty pleas, five people serving jail time, and they recovered $28.6 million. Other than that, absolutely nothing. Do you see my point? The hoax is over. No Russian collagen, no internal obstructions, no unauthorized charges, totally translucent, complete ventilation of me, your favorite president, and A.G. Barr said I'm absolutely excoriated and excommunicated. What more do the Democrats want?